Eugene believed, really believed, that the story of God is more beautiful and more profound, more scandalous and more disruptive, more humanizing than all the things we've done to it. That no matter how deep we scratch at the story, how far we go, we've only begun to hear the first edges and shadows of the depth of the love of God in Christ. Welcome to the Renovari Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is Wynn Collier. Wynn directs the Eugene Peterson Center at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He's also an associate professor there of pastoral theology and Christian imagination. Wynn has recently finished the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson, and it's fantastic. It's titled A Burning in My Bones. And it just so happens to be the next title we're working with at the Renovare Book Club. Still time to join at renovare.org slash book club. I had a chance to talk with Wynn from his office in Michigan about the biography and his relationship with Eugene. Wynn, I have just a really odd question for you. You don't want to answer. We don't need to answer it. And I'm happy to cut it. Are you tired of talking about Eugene? No. <laughs> and if so, why? I don't know that I'd say I'm tired of talking about him, but I'm I'm growing leery of talking about him because Eugene spent his whole life, ministry life, really saying that it's not about him or it's not about me. It's not about it's about God, Christ, beauty, grace. And particularly in our moment, resisting celebrity and all the things that we do to one another when we put each other on pedestals. And I think Eugene's life is really worthy of being honored and remembered as a faithful witness. But I want to keep it in the realm of grace. What do you think Eugene would think about the biography coming out and all the interviews and such? I've thought about that a fair bit. I'm not honestly sure. But where I go is I think he would be gratified in some ways, horrified in others. I think he'd be embarrassed. I think he'd be grateful for the life he'd lived and what God allowed him to be a part of. And I think in a small way, I think he'd be proud of me, which feels good to to think that. Yeah, I like that. I I talked with Eric Peterson. I had him on the podcast a while ago while you were writing the book. And he had, I think it was after the interview, we talked a little bit about, about you and the work. And he was so enthusiastic about um, you as the biographer, uh, which just kind of delighted me because that families don't have to feel that way about the mm-hmm. official biographer. So gave me much enthusiasm to be at this point. Uh, but I'm curious to hear, how did you come to write the book, be the biographer? Well, that story goes back probably to somewhere around 1999. Uh, my wife, Miska, and I moved to Colorado and we went there for Miska to go to grad school. And I didn't know for sure what I was going to do. I thought I was going to take a, a, a year break from formal ministry. But I found myself in a really small church that had had two or three splits and was really struggling. And 
I had come out of a, a church where it had been really hard and I'd worked for a pastor who had been damaging to me, but I was also still fairly new from seminary. So I had kind of this mix of energy that I could still figure things out mixed with having some of the, the luster knocked off. So I landed this church and these poor folks were so kind to me and put up with me as I took them through a visionering, I think I even used that term, visionering process and gave them a PowerPoint presentation about all the things we were going to change and do and how we were going to revive the church. And this one guy asked me, so when are we going to pray? <laughs> and I looked at my, you know, my PowerPoint presentation and I don't think prayer was anywhere in there. And it really gave me pause. And a couple of months later, one of the elders at the church came up to me after church on Sunday and handed me a book. And it was Eugene's Working the Angles, The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. And he said, when I think you'll enjoy this book. And I realized later what he meant was when I think you need this book. <laughs> but I went home that afternoon, opened it up before a little Sunday afternoon nap. And I was only a couple paragraphs in and my, I just was pierced. I had grown up in the church. My dad's a pastor. You have to learn these things for yourselves. You know, I, I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. Um, and I didn't know what it meant to be a pastor. And I, I think, too, that Eugene gave a language for uh, the, 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 the calling, the hope, the integrity in our particular moment that just resonated so deeply with me. Um, so I began to devour him, his words. And um, a year or so later, I was writing my first book, with one of his publishers and I twisted their arm and got them to give me his address. I wrote him a letter and I couldn't believe it. He wrote back and I thought by I was- By hand, right? By, by hand. <laughs> no email. <laughs> no, yeah, it was actually typed, but, um, but yes, it was not by email. That's for sure. And I just thought I was so unique, you know, that he, Eugene wrote me back until years later, I would have literally thousands of letters in my basement and that he had written- folks. And um, so we began to write over the years and saw him a couple times. In 2016, I was in Montana uh, for a pastoral retreat. Going to see him as I was flying back home. I began to think about his life and how someone was going to write a story. I wrote him a letter and told him about how I hoped somebody would tell his story. Um, not just gather the facts, but someone who was in his world and saw could could see the world the way he sees it and there's a, a a biographer called the life of alexander white that had been really meaningful to eugene he kept it by his desk and read it regularly and, and alexander white was an old scottish pastor from the 1800s who was became eugene's pastor through this biography and i told him that i hoped um maybe somebody uh would would find hope in his biography the same way he had in alexander white's and a week or two later, he called me up and he, and he said, when, uh, you know, I got your letter, explain this to me again. And I basically just walked him through it. And I said, Eugene, does, uh, does talking about this make you tired or give you energy? And he said, when it makes me tired, <laughs> which honestly is exactly what I would have expected. I fully expected this to be a no, but I just thought that I needed to ask and tell him what I was thinking. <laughs> 
And uh, for some reason, we kept talking, and about five or ten minutes later, he said, "When I think I have energy now. I think you're supposed to write this. So the next few years were spent knee-deep in his letters and journals and manuscripts, conversations with friends, lots of time on the lake with he and Jan. It, it was uh, It was unexpected and profound. Mm-hmm. What surprised you in that journey? I'm not sure that I would exactly say something surprised me, but maybe how at home I felt with them. Um, they really j- did just welcome me in, into their home and their family. I, I feel like I became such dear friends of particularly uh, Leaf and Eric and just the delight of, you know, as I was with them, over those couple of years, particularly Eugene's health was starting to decline pretty dramatically. And there would be weeks where I was there and I just sort of, I almost felt like I felt when I was with my grandparents and they were declining. You know, I would take care of the dishes and make sure that the bird feed got out. And, you know, I don't know, there was these moments where I was almost directing them in some ways, which is just totally was not, not expected. And, <laughs> And was really gracious. Um, I, I was grateful for the chance to to love them and serve them in that way. It's interesting because, I mean, Eugene was like the anti-celebrity, but yet in a sense he was the perfect celebrity because, right, their hospitality mm-hmm. of him and Jan was, I've heard so many stories of people who they just invited in. I mean, you know, come for a weekend or something and, it's remarkable. You go through the, their guest book where they would have people sign. And I mean, it was just, it was like a, an in, you know, I mean, how, how they pulled this off. And I do think, you know, there definitely were long seasons where it was tiring. And I think Jan at times felt overwhelmed, particularly because she was the cook and she was the, um, she, and she loved to, this wasn't, you know, um, this wasn't hoisted on her, but it also became a lot, but you know, she loved to bake cookies and she loved to have you in the, in the kitchen with her, um, making the dinner. And, and one thing that, that was remarkable is, and a friend of mine actually pointed this out and I was like, oh, that, that is really true. Um, their kind of hospitality was true hospitality in that they welcomed you just into their life. They did not adapt their life for you. Hmm. And I think you can understand what I mean. Like, it wasn't that they were saying they don't, they don't care that you're there, but it's, there's, a, there's a way in which you can say, you are invited into the rhythm of my life. I'm going to wake when I plan to wake, as I always do. <laughs> you know, um, you're probably not going to see me till nine or 10 because I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be reading scripture and prayer and the paper and having my coffee and time with Jan. And, and they were getting, you know, and, and many people would discover how they would just invite them into their evening prayers and their time of walks. And there's actually just a really deep generosity of hospitality that happens in that way. So sort of integrity to it, right? Mm-hmm. That you got what you got, right? Yeah, that's right. There's no pretense to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I found it delightful that at the beginning of the book, the the map uh, mm-hmm. uh, in Montana, and it kind of has that you know, Tolkien feel to it. Um, how important was place for, for Eugene? Essential. I mean, I, I just don't think you could understand Eugene and not understand the Flathead Valley 
uh, in Montana, it was so deep in him. I, I think even a lot of his opposition to ego and image and big names and big power moves and all the stuff that he so detested within Western culture and particularly uh, the church culture in the U.S. was certainly born out of conviction of what the way of Jesus is. It's certainly born out of what it means to be uh, humble and to love and certainly was born out of deep conviction about what it actually means to be a pastor and that we are squandering and abandoning our call by um, using churches and using Christian ministry for our own name. However, there it was also born of being a Montanan <laughs> who, who uh, disliked and distrusted uh, people that drove the big cards and used the big words and didn't seem to actually have actions that followed up their big promises. Um, he was the son of a butcher. And one of the things that the butcher taught him, in fact, he, he said the first place he learned congregation, but what it meant to be a congregation was in the butcher shop. Because in the butcher shop, everybody belonged. And whether you could only afford, uh, you know, some bologna, or you were buying the top tomahawk steak. I don't even know if they had tomahawk steaks back then, but either way, his dad knew your name. You belonged. You were treated with dignity. It was a place of welcome. And the only person that he said ever felt like they didn't belong in the butcher shop was the preacher. Because the preacher would come in and would put on a different air and use different words and be sanctimonious. And his, his dad always treated the preacher kindly and with warmth. But it was something that Eugene picked up on, even as a boy, that this, this ego and image, and the, the preachers were there for 18 months and gone. They weren't the ones who stayed. And so I think there was something deep in that as a, as a Montana, Montanan, a, a man of the West, a son of a butcher who he was plain spoken. He loved being with people who said what they meant and meant what they said. And all of those things are part of the parcel of his life and witness. The butcher shop, his dad, those experiences gave him a kind of milieu or picture for um, what a pastor could be or church. His mom, how, how much do you think some of his thinking was influenced by her experiences as a, I want to call her pastor, but. Yeah, absolutely. No person was more influential on him than his mom. In fact, you know, I just basically gave you the highlight of his dad's influence was his dad as a butcher. Most of the other things we would say about his dad, his relationship with his dad, uh, is, a, is a tough story. He didn't feel close to his dad. Um, his dad was very distant. But his mom, his mom's spirituality, her, her way with God, her vivid imagination, the way she would carry him with her into those logging camps on those cold February Sunday nights, and he would be given the task of throwing uh, the kindling in the potbelly stove and getting the warmth, you know, um, and she'd be the only woman in the room. And uh, this, this sense of her daring courage of, she was the first one that taught him how to read the scripture 
and how to do it with wide open eyes and a wide open heart. I don't think anyone influences reading of the Bible more than his mom. And so it was this vibrant, um, soul alive, courageous faith filled with integrity and, um, like Eugene in later years, I mean, she simply loved the people that God put in front of her and modeled that for Eugene. And, and you were right to kind of grapple with that word pastor because Eugene would call her a pastor. And Eugene would say she, she taught him how to be a pastor, but she often didn't claim that word for herself because she wasn't allowed to. And Because she was a woman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Eugene said it kind of varied by which pastor was in town at the time as to how much she could or couldn't sort of own who she was, which is just a tragedy. But her influence was immense. And, you know, she was deeply Pentecostal. I mean, that was Eugene's <laughs> upbringing and Montana Pentecostal, you know. Um, she was preaching like to the mining camps or the right. uh, logging camps, right? That's right. Yeah. And eventually she actually started her own church in one of the grain halls. Um, and uh, she also did a weekend uh, radio program. Eugene would go with her on Saturday mornings, sit there on the windowsill, and she would spin gospel songs from old vinyls and tell these imaginative stories of scripture that would just bring it to life. In fact, Eugene would later say, as I got older, sometimes I'd read these profound Bible stories, particularly from the Old Testament, and I would think, oh, there's there's something missing there. There's that that detail missing. And they <laughs> realized that's something his mom had, had sort of, you know, brought brought out. And um, so, yeah, she, she, was, she was immense. And I think it's also important to say that there's some of that Pentecostal fire that he never left. Um, I mean, he was a Presbyterian, and but God was alive and real, present. It's quite the soup that he mm-hmm. was raised in. If I keep going, I might get a good raspy Eugene voice here. There you go. <laughs> I love his rasp. That was. Mm. Um, what do you hope people remember about Eugene? Hmm. I hope they remember that Eugene deeply and profoundly loved his God. That that Eugene believed really believed that the story of God is more beautiful and more profound, more scandalous and more disruptive, more humanizing than all the things we've done to it. That no matter how deep we scratch at the story, how far we go, we've only begun to hear the first edges and shadows of the depth of the love of God in Christ. I hope that they remember that Eugene had integrity he was far from perfect and it was important in the story that the true Eugene be shared but that he was true he was faithful um, I don't know about you Nathan but I, I'm kind of desperate for some just good people who <laughs> yeah, um, who don't pretend to be perfect because I know they're not but who um, own their mistakes when they make them <laughs> or who say I don't know or but who's word rings with 
truthfulness and who are not attempting to amass power, but are seeking to love and serve. I think, you know, we're all really familiar of the epidemic of Christian leaders who are the exact antithesis of that. But there are people, and I've been with some of them, <laughs> who, who live a different way. And I hope, I hope people remember that. It encouraged me as a young person hearing him in, in his reading. It kind of gave me permission to not buy into the system of bigger, better celebrity um, and then his kind of love of art and imagination, creativity. There was something really freeing for me personally to see someone, you know, another person modeling that. And, and I suspect there are many people who had that experience with him. <laughs> Do you have a favorite story from the book? You know, um, my favorite story recently has, was actually didn't make it in the book because I didn't discover it until afterwards. And I'm still tracking down the person that this story originally came from to make sure I've got the facts right. So, um, <laughs> but I don't know when this would have been, but I'm, I'm guessing early 2000s. I'm trying to even remember when Google and, and such was, was really exploding for the first time. I, I don't remember the timing, but he and Jan were at a friend's house and there was another person there. And this person was explaining to Jan and Eugene, Google, you know, and Jane and Eugene just didn't, they didn't have technology in their life, really. I mean, they had a washing machine, but outside of that. <laughs> um, and, and, and was explaining how, you know, if you just type someone's uh, name into Google, just immense pages and pages of information come up. And, and this person was sitting on a couch, as it was told to me, between Jane and Eugene. And, and, uh, and, J and Jan, who, you know, very mischievous, said, so you could put in Eugene's name and there'd be stuff in there? And he said, well, absolutely. She goes, let's do it. Let's try it, you know? <laughs> and so he types in Eugene Peterson, hits enter. And just as you would imagine, you know, just, just hundreds and hundreds of things filling up the pages. And, and Eugene reached his right hand over, grabbed the top of the laptop lid and closed the lid. And stood up and walked out of the room. And this guy, you know, probably felt a little chagrined and all this. And sometime later in the afternoon, Eugene was came back into the room and was talking with this guy and said, "You know, I'm sorry if I was if I was rude there." But he said, "I I have a hard enough time staying true to who God wants me to be without me paying attention to what people who I don't even know." who they are, um, worrying what they think about me. And I just thought, man, um, I don't even know exactly what to do with that other than, than thinking there is a posture of life that is so deeply embedded into a character of who someone is that that would be their initial reaction. And I don't know, you know, I'm certainly not, suggesting nobody should ever google anything I don't, I don't even know but i do know that eugene in his reaction has pinpointed a deep deep malady in the psyche and heart and soul of our culture and our hearts and our souls and our lives and god give us more people who in our own ways you know close that lid 
um, because it's killing us. Yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And it, 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 it makes me wonder in 20 years, how many people will there be who have the courage or wisdom to close the computer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Sorry, just thinking no. where I want to go. <laughs> no, I appreciate the pause. Eugene did pauses when he talked. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you when you were interviewing him? I feel like at first, and I, and I, and this is a vague, feels like a vague, hazy memory, but I feel like at first it was very disconcerting because just my comfort with him was not, you know, I think I feel a compulsion to carry a conversation. And if I am not coming up with a good question or I think someone else doesn't have something uh, that they feel energized to respond to that I need to sort of work to make it happen. But that went away pretty quickly, I think. And I came to really cherish the silence and to cherish the kind of, I know I keep using this word, but the generosity and the hospitality of presence with him. I, I didn't feel like he was working to be with me. And he was inviting me to not work to be with him, <laughs> which is such a wonderful gift. Maybe we need to come up with some other words because the celebrity word, you know, we, we kind of all react to it, even those of us who are trying to be celebrities. <laughs> but there is really something about letting your guard down and being more attentive to, eager for, hopeful for those beautiful mysteries that happen in places of kindness when friendship erupts and the Holy Spirit just makes something beautiful happen between humans that doesn't usually happen when we are striving and when we are, we have an agenda. Even our conversation today, I've really appreciated the fact that it's not felt pushed. There's been pauses, curiosity, and it's actually deeply sad to me that that's not normal. It should be normal. Like, why why would that be abnormal? Um, This is how humans think and interact with one another when we're actually paying attention. Unless I... I'm thinking about what I'm going to say 30 seconds from now or preemptively thinking about where you're taking the conversation so that I can jump ahead of you and be there. All those things are really dishonoring to another person. And they're dishonoring to my own desire and longing for friendship and something that's real and true. So I felt like his silence was one of the most instructive things he gave me. I love, I mean, his pastoral theology, to pull out a cliche, it changed my life. I don't think I would be the pastor I am if I had not encountered Eugene Peterson, the God of Eugene Peterson. I love his spiritual theology. In fact, I think his five-volume spiritual theology has yet to detonate. Um, I think what, what he is doing there is more pregnant in this moment than it has ever been his biblical theology, his memoir. I mean, all of it. It's beautiful. I love it. My library wouldn't be the same without it. But if I were to name the most instructive thing he gave me, I think it was his silence. Wow. Um, because he wasn't telling me 
anything about God. He was showing me about his God. That his God was one who was with whom we could have immense ease. There you go. And one who was profoundly holy and deserving of our attention, our loving attention. And that we are humans. And that's a deeply good thing. And as humans, we need to gather all of our faculties and our senses. And that he would honor my question enough to not sprint to a response <laughs> that was pre-canned. That he was actually going to receive my question. And let it sink in. And, and I believe that there's nothing external that would indicate this. And I, and I think in a posture of prayer, be present with that question. Be present with the Trinity, and, and then out of that place, maybe respond. And that's probably why so many times Eugene's answer was not an answer because he had taken the time to recognize that beneath our question was something really more important and that our questions are often out of our own neurosis. <laughs> and and it, it was never in a like, oh, that's dumb or... It, it, in this gentlest way, he could just redirect you like, oh, I don't know, but maybe this is a better question or that silence. And, you know, as we're, as we're seeking this, I would say that one of the other things that shockingly to me ended up being profound grace that Eugene gave me. So it's his silence. And the second thing was his no. So in 2013, probably I wrote him. To that point, I had not visited him in Montana. I'd visited him once in Alaska and I'd seen him very briefly somewhere else. Um, and I knew these, these other pastors who'd had these wonderful experiences visiting Eugene and Jan, being in his cabin. And um, I wrote him and I, you know, we'd, we'd been writing. He, he, I think at this point I called him my pastor, you know, and I, and I asked him, <laughs> I asked him if I could come and visit. And he wrote back and he just said, no, it's just not going to work right now. And, and I was, I was really disappointed because I thought I'm never going to have that experience. I would love to just be with her in his, in his place. That's so meaningful. Had no idea that years later, you know, I'd spend immense time there. <laughs> but at the, at the time I thought this was, this was it. This was the final. But what really struck me, why it was so meaningful was that Eugene in kindness, but clarity said no. And didn't feel any compulsion or need to justify that no. Or to explain to me all the reasons why he just simply couldn't do this. And I was aware in this season of my life that if I had to tell somebody no, like I would jump through hoops. And I would write <laughs> paragraphs trying to justify, <laughs> you know, I'm so sorry. please. But that, all of that would really be about me. I don't yeah. want you to think, you know. It's image management. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I just thought, I, I hate this. I'm so disappointed. I'll probably never get to, you know, see Eugene and Jan in their place. And I thought that is a transformative interaction for me because um, that's how it's, that's how it's possible to lead with and to respond and relate with both strength and clarity and generosity and lack of apology and, ah. Uh, it was profound. <laughs> I love the, the two words bubbling up or silence and no. 
as you've been talking, went a couple words that come to mind to me is humility, integrity, uh, sort of dignity and worth of 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 the other. Um, and I half wonder if if the part of that led to why he was free to say no. What a freedom for him, <laughs> but also for you. In talking to you a little bit before we pushed record, it sounds like a number of these kind of values that Eugene and Jan embodied, um, you're trying to uh, lean into, live into with the center there. Could you tell folks a little about what you're up to there in Holland, Michigan? Well, I want to say what we're not up to, which is (laughs) um, building a mausoleum to Eugene or spend the next decade um, just asking what would Eugene say about this and that and the other. But rather recognizing Eugene as a witness to the way of Jesus in the world, a witness to the one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there are three groups of people that Eugene seemed to always be in conversation with and people that were drawn to Eugene. One was pastors. The second was creative folks, writers, uh, musicians, poets, artists of every sort. And then what I call hopeful, trying to be faithful, mostly befuddled Christians. So we want to continue conversations with all three of those groups. So we have a doctor of ministry program for pastors called Holy Presence, Eugene Peterson and the Pastoral Imagination. We have one for writers called the Sacred Art of Writing. We have retreats that we offer at times, circles of friendship for pastors, gathering of artists and beauty, music, starting that. An annual gathering next October called Doxology, where we just want to spend some time together pointing toward God. That's what we're doing. So it's not, you know, it's nothing brilliant or extraordinary. It's hopefully attempts at common faithfulness, which pockets of Christians here and there and everywhere in all times and places are are doing and have done. And we just want to join in and work from the margins and be as faithful as we know to be and point to a beautiful and good God. Just delights my heart to hear what you guys are doing. You seem like the perfect person to help cultivate a space for mm. these folks. Yeah, thank you. When it's just a delight for me. Thank you for the time and, and sharing your, your love of uh, Eugene and his life. Well, thanks for having me. And that was Wynn Collier talking about the new book, Burning in My Bones, the authorized biography of Eugene H. Peterson. You can join us in the Renovare Book Club as we together work with this book. Visit renovare.org slash book club to find out more information. You can also learn more about the Eugene Peterson Center at petersoncenter.org. And you can also find more about Wynn and his other books at winncollier.com. That's W-I-N-N-C-O-L-L-I-E-R.com. We'll put the links to those sites in the podcast show notes. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Runabari Podcast. This work is made possible by the generosity of donors like you. Thank you. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. 
You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events in our two-year institute at renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morcon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well. <laughs>